0: Welcome to PodShip Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we talk about fighting fires. Twice a week, a firefighter dies in the line of duty. Heroes in the truest sense of the word. Firefighters spend their lives doing gritty, dangerous work wearing down their lungs and their bodies so that the rest of us can have safer lives. The biggest fire in recent San Francisco history began with just a few wisps of smoke from the top story of the building right here. Within a half hour, the entire structure was engulfed. Here's how it happened, beginning with the first call to fire dispatch.
1: Working fire on a building of construction
0: East of Los Angeles, more than 1,500 firefighters are facing walls of fire 80 feet tall. Hot, dry gusts are whipping up fire tornadoes across brush brittle from drought. Firefighters are frontline responders in the battle against climate change. Whether it's fighting raging wildfires or helping urban dwellers overcome extreme heat or rescuing victims of rising seas, firefighters are who we call on first. What is less well-known is that firefighters are being exposed to a toxic soup of chemicals from melting flat-screen TVs and nylon carpets each time they respond to a residential fire. I talk with Tom O'Connor, who is a battalion chief in San Francisco's fire department, as well as one of the directors of the San Francisco Cancer Prevention Foundation, about how firefighters are leading the charge to clean up our planet, one community at a time. I start by asking Battalion Chief O'Connor how long he's been with the San Francisco Fire Department.
1: I had been a firefighter in San Francisco for roughly 27 years.
0: And Tom, what, what attracted you in the first place to becoming a firefighter?
1: It was just the ability to help others and engage in some sort of civic duty that I wanted to serve the community, and as well as a uh, kind of drifting between jobs at that point in my life. I thought I was going to be a college professor and I was in grad school at Davis and this job came up in San Francisco and I thought, well, maybe I'll do this and make my way through grad school before I get my PhD. And 27 years later, I'm all about dissertation, but one day I'll go back and finish up.
0: <laughs> what, was it, what was it on, Tom?
1: Uh, political science.
0: That's pretty amazing that you made that switch at that time. Had you thought about being a firefighter
1: before? I'm the first in the family. I come from a family of New York cops. And ironically enough, um, my mother's an identical twin, and both sisters gave birth at roughly the same time. And my cousin is a New York fireman, and I'm a San Francisco firefighter. So, yeah, we both kind of follow similar career paths in life.
0: We're in an interesting time as it relates to kind of public service and... Firefighters are still revered and you're everyone's local hero, whereas the police are going through a a rough time in terms of their public perception and, and, frankly, their behavior.
1: Firefighters are very fortunate in that, you know, every time we're called, we're there to help. We don't give out tickets. We don't arrest people. Like, there's no negative outcome of a visit from a firefighter. We know that the public calls us at their absolute worst moment. So we make sure that they have absolute trust in us. I mean, if they call and they want us there, they are at their lowest of low, we want to make sure that it's a very non-intrusive private visit and you know, we want to maintain that trust. So if they open their door to a stranger to come in and help, we want to make sure that they always feel welcome to open that door. So we're always in the community talking to people and we make sure we follow up on the clients that we do visit for a medical call or a fire call. I mean, we really nurture the relationship with the community. So and it's sort of a, an oral tradition that's been handed down with virtually every fire department in the nation, you maintain that, that level of, of trust and that relationship with the public.
0: And one of the things that's unique about firefighters is you all kind of live together. I mean, it's more like a family. You're going back to your family of firefighters. How does that shift even work?
1: You work one 24 hour shift, and usually you're off for 48 hours, and it comes to a 48 or 56 hour work week. But uh, yeah, it is kind of a, a unique social experiment where you put all these people together for 24 hours and you have meals together and you, you know, live and fight and work together. And it's like any family you have fights, you have disagreements, and you make up and you come together, and there's high points and low points, but you make it all work. Some people say we put the fun in dysfunction, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's a a great experiment, and it's really an enjoyable profession, especially when you put that family aspect together. And where's
0: your battalion, Tom?
1: I'm battalion one, which goes from downtown San Francisco to Chinatown, North Beach, all the way over to the wharf. So it's a big, busy battalion.
0: How many firefighters do you have?
1: Uh, We have roughly 70 firefighters in this battalion every day. So it's five stations, and I get about 6,000 runs a year, so I don't know how many we would get with all the engines and trucks put together, probably in excess of 90,000 calls a year. Amazing. That's huge. Yeah, we keep busy. It's really slowed down now with the pandemic because downtown is emptied. So there's nobody to call 911 anymore. They're all sheltering in place somewhere else.
0: So you were probably the busiest, and now it's just a complete flip.
1: Yeah, we were the busiest, and now it's like I'm the mayor of Gotham with all these boarded-up storefronts and windows. It's it's. Mm starting to return to normal, but it still just doesn't feel like San Francisco.
0: And just back to kind of the family aspect of of all being together, how are those issues of race and equality? Do those get played out day in, day out in the station houses? Are there conversations happening now that weren't happening before?
1: We went through a consent decree in the 90s where the federal courts mandated that we hire and match the population of San Francisco, the working population. And that was a difficult period initially because there was a sort of a class-based thing where people who were against affirmative action were more in tune with, well, we're all of the lower socioeconomic class, so I don't get why we need to diversify. We're all poor kids together who become civil servants. But over time, it exposed us to, you know, racial and cultural and ethnic differences, and you saw the good in all that, and you learned from it, and you realized the value of having the fire department matched the community. And so when you walk into someone's home, it's not three white guys working into an African-American home, it's a, it's a blend of people. So it's, it's become our greatest strength, but ironically enough, during the course of my career, roughly 27 years, so we went through the growing pains of diversifying, and now when we walk into someone's home, usually we're more diverse than San Francisco now. So the city has seen a like a migration out of African Americans and Hispanic Americans. And then we roll in like the League of Nations and suddenly, you know, it's all white tech bros. And it's just, it's funny how the pendulum swings, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, it it's sad. I remember when I worked for Willie Brown in 2001, He was lamenting that the city was only 12% African-American. Now it's, I think, 4% only 19 years later. So there's been a huge exodus of diversity. And that's pretty amazing that the fire department is probably the most diverse aspect of San Francisco. When a fire starts and you get the call, whatever bell alarm it is, you're getting a call. And there's probably things that are similar in fires, like what's burning, how it burns, and then what the impact is on your firefighters
1: before my time fires were very simple it was a wood victorian with wool carpet organic materials and the furniture burning and maybe you had one tv in a wooden box what was it called a hi-fi or something like that that would be on fire you'd put it out and you had single pane windows and the window would break and everything would vent and you'd go on your way now when we go into a fire it's it's sort of a toxic soup of plastics and synthetic materials, and there's a flat screen TV in every room, and there's a laptop in every room. And, you know, so the, the, the composition of things that are burning have changed dramatically. So while our fires have gone down over the years, the toxicity of each fire has gone up exponentially. And the fires have also become more dangerous because we're putting in double pane windows and we're insulating. So the fires that we do go into are hotter and more dangerous and that, that room is sealed up with those toxins, they're not venting out through a front window like that dramatic TV fire where you see the flames running outside. So the fires we're going to are far, far more dangerous for the firefighters themselves, both the fire event and the lasting health events going forward.
0: Okay, so you've got this toxic soup, Tom, and like, when did that start? I mean, I guess it was a slow evolution from the '70s to now of more and more plastic crap, more and more toxic materials. Like, when did firefighters start realizing that this was an issue?
1: We've been slow to realize the issue, um, and there's sort of a twofold reason for it. Number one is that you know we were becoming sick. And it was sort of anecdotal where it seemed like a lot of firefighters were becoming sick, but you didn't have this broad swath of numbers to do a real analysis of it. And number two, you could look at one fire department like, say, San Francisco Fire Department. And if X number of people out of 1,400 become sick, well, that's not a significant you know population to measure whether or not there is a link between cancer and firefighting. So it took... There was some research done, I think it was Barbara Mikulski at the University of Maryland. She put together about 15 different studies of smaller fire departments and that was the first sort of link to cancer and firefighting. But while we were wrestling with the anecdotal data that we were succumbing to cancer in, in far higher numbers in the population, we started this Cancer Prevention Foundation. Tony Stefani started it with the help of the, of the Firefighters Union, Local 798. And we immediately got noticed uh, because of the work we were doing in NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. saw what we were doing and they got us together with Chicago and Philadelphia and San Francisco. And they did a 50 year longitudinal study of firefighters, both active and retired. And they culled the data by getting uh, death certificates and to see what the cause of death was for firefighters over the course of 50 years. And that 50 year span with 25,000 firefighters sort of became a significant enough cohort, a significant number to say, okay, there is a definitive link between firefighting and cancer. And here are the specific cancers we've identified. And here are some others that are probably related to firefighting. So it took us a long time because we weren't talking to each other. We didn't have the research on our side and the research we did have wasn't broad enough to say, you know, that is statistically significant. So we finally got that Uh, God, was that 2013 maybe we got that? I'm trying to think of the numbers. But yeah, that was the first sort of big movement. And then while that was happening, Tony Stefani, and with with my help, we sort of turned the fire department into like a group of lab rats um, where we had their blood and urine analyzed before and after fires, uh, where we conducted studies with the University of California, San Francisco on kidney and bladder cancer. Uh, We did a biomonitoring study with Berkeley on breast cancer and female firefighters. We did a blood analysis of heavy metals in firefighters' blood after a fire, and most recently we took uh, blood samples and tissue pair samples from firefighters at the big wildland fires of the last two years, the Camp Fire and the Paradise Fire, and we're having all of that analyzed to see like what are these firefighters being exposed to, because it's not a forest fire anymore. It's you know 3,000 homes on the edge of a forest burning, and they don't wear any respiratory protection at all while they're doing this, so... It's sort of like, if you have 3,000 homes vaporized in 48 hours, it's sort of a mini 911 where you just have so many toxins released into the environment, and we don't know the hang time of those toxins and how long they stay in the air. so often with a wildfire, you'll have little or no wind or offshore winds, the Santa Ana. So it's going to blow out to the ocean and it's going to come back. So that's just a swirling mass of, of a toxic plume. And we're finding that you know, the analysis of these of the hair follicles and the blood follicles in firefighters, that they are exposed to numerous carcinogenic uh, compounds in their blood.
0: So Tom, before we get on to the wildfires, let's, let's talk about your average domestic fire. So... Anecdotally were you were people coming to you before this research or during this research saying, you know this person who 's been a veteran in this in this firefighting battalion is succumbing to cancer, and what you were you hearing as a battalion chief
1: I was sitting in the back of the church, being a good Catholic, trying to avoid the front row, and at a funeral for uh, Joe Fitzpatrick, he died of liver cancer in his mid 40s. And I turned to the person next to me and I said, there's way too many funerals we're going to. Something's going on here. Somebody should do something. And then within a week, Tony Stefani showed up. Uh, he was a captain at a downtown station who had transitional cell carcinoma, a rare kidney and bladder cancer that's usually found people in the chemical industry. And when he was diagnosed, you know, the doctor asked him what he did for a living. And you know, he said, well, I'm a firefighter. He said, well, you are in the chemical industry. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, you're exposed to so many toxins and so many chemicals that you're the equivalent of like a non-protected industrial worker at, you know, the middle of the century. And it kind of dawned on us. And then we realized we had a cancer cluster of kidney and bladder cancer at station one downtown and at station three downtown. And so we kind of worked our way back from there. And it was a Dr. Marshall Stoller at UCSF who was a... uh, kidney and bladder cancer specialist oncologist and he, he started tracing the data and he, he realized you know just with that one cancer alone he said one out of 50,000 people might get this cancer and we had like five cases between 4,000 active and retired firefighters so the alarm was set I mean it's a really rare cancer to get and we had more and more cases of it coming up and of those I think only two are still alive so it really dawned on us that we were having a problem.
0: It must have been shocking because no one, no one thinks that when this stuff burns from their TV to their couch to their carpet, that it's, it's really exposing not only the environment, but most importantly, the firefighters who are coming to protect us, our, our life and safety. You kind of become uh, a professor of, of en- environmental toxins, which you probably didn't think you would when you started as a firefighter.
1: No, I never imagined that happening. Once we started getting these numbers, we also kind of did a little research on our own about cancer and firefighting. And like I said, we found all those smaller studies. But ironically enough, the most significant study that we found was one of the oldest. It was a turn-of-the-century study on chimney sweeps. So in London, if you were a chimney sweep, you were sort of a vagabond, you know, a hobo. And you would get you know paid to slide down the chimney and clean it out, and you'd sleep in your dirty clothes, and you you know one of those Mary Poppins sort of characters. And chimney sweeps in England were dying in their forties from cancer. If you were in Sweden, you were in a chimney guild, you were in a union of chimney sweeps, and one of the job conditions you had was that at the end of the day, all of your equipment was washed, and every day you put on a clean uniform to go down and do your work the next day. And chimney sweeps in Sweden had virtually no cancers whatsoever. And we started thinking about our turnout equipment, the gear that we wear, and we would never wash it. It was a badge Mm. of honor to be filthy and covered in smoke and have a dirty jacket. And we realized like, we are just walking around in giant toxic sponges 24 hours a day on all of these calls. And so we installed what we call extractors, these special washing machines that would, after every fire, get all the toxins out of our equipment. And we decontaminate ourselves. And now the research has led to further evidence that we're not breathing in the toxins. It's getting into our armpits and our groins and our eyes. So it's almost more dangerous for us after the fire, when we're cleaning up and removing debris, that the, the property is still off-gassing all the products of combustion. And so it's releasing these silent sort of invisible gases from the couch, from the carpet, from the s- flat screen TV. And we were, you know, having exposures to all those chemicals after the fire. So immediately after a fire, we take off our stuff, we wash it, and now we use baby wipes to uh, wipe our face, our necks, and our armpits because that's the, the primary routes of transmission for these chemicals. Incredible and, and terrifying. And so that, um, Tom, brought you...
0: Kind of into alignment with environmental agencies, starting with brominated flame retardants. So flame retardants is kind of the ultimate irony, right? Because we're being told that by soaking furniture, our carpets, baby clothes in flame retardants, that somehow we're actually helping you, the firefighters. But what was the truth of that story?
1: The exact opposite. There was this big sort of chemical industrial complex that was you know, leaning the political tables in their favor to put more and more of these chemicals into everyday items. And these were the most dangerous chemicals we could face. And they also provided little or no fire protection whatsoever. Ironically enough, if you did the study, it really wasn't helping at all. The environmental groups who were trying to get rid of these chemicals saw what Tony Stefani and the foundation was doing, and we partnered up together. And I guess, you know, angry moms and firefighters were a coalition that just could not be beat at the, at the uh, legislative level. And we ended up prevailing in getting these chemicals banned uh, in California. Because uh, most furniture manufacturers in the nation follow California's lead because it's the biggest market. So if you got rid of those chemicals and that standard, then sure enough, they would follow nationwide and, and not put those chemicals in furniture. So we've prevailed... Uh, quite a bit across the country with having these chemicals removed from furniture and clothing and things like that.
0: And you really needed a firefighter standing next to you as an environmentalist because an environmentalist saying, oh, yeah, we don't need these flame retardants is very different than a firefighter saying the same thing.
1: You You have that stereotypical, you know, the tree hugger that wants to eliminate all chemicals and, you know, why should we listen to you? And then you have, you know, the firefighter who is a cancer survivor coming to you saying... This is a danger not only to children and to, you know, residents of homes, but to firefighters. This is killing us. We we are the canary in the coal mine. Something is happening here, and we're the ones that are dying to show you that this is a toxic environment, and we need to change this immediately. So, yeah, it was a very powerful statement.
0: I recently um, did a test in Berkeley for my own blood to look at PFAS chemicals, which are also used in in some firefighting equipment, especially on military and other bases. And the the sample that I got, I was found to have sixteen different PFAS chemicals. And these chemicals, these forever chemicals, are like ubiquitous in, in everything, from water repellent to uh, Teflon to you name it. The two groups that were listed on on my piece of paper when I got the results were pregnant women in San Francisco, which I was way above, but I was still below firefighters in San Francisco. So firefighters were, to your point, you've tested a lot of firefighters' um, blood to look at these chemicals. So is this the next fight, PFAS?
1: Well, oddly enough, uh, just this morning I was reading, and I think it was Notre Dame just did a study, and they're finding that the turnout equipment we wear are protective jackets and pants. They're loaded with PFAS. <laughs> so the very equipment used protect us from fire, we may be leaching the chemicals into our skin through that equipment itself. So now we have to look at a way to make new gear that isn't toxic. Again, like, okay, now I cleaned it, I'm safe, wrong. The chemicals are in my gear. So even if I wash it, it's just composed of these deadly PFAS chemicals. So we're gonna have to scramble and find um, new equipment, which goes back to irony again. When I got in the fire department in San Francisco, we were a very old fashioned fire department. We wore work boots, wool pants, a jacket and a leather helmet. That's what we wore into fires. We didn't have all the gear. And the thought was, well, the more that you're exposed, the more you would realize it's time to get out of the building. It's too hot. We don't need all this bulky safety equipment, you know, cowboys. And then we modernized and we put on all this bulky gear. And now we're, we're covering ourselves in more carcinogenic chemicals in, the, in the, the thought process that we're making ourselves safer. But ironically enough, we're really not making ourselves any safer. And more things change, more they stay the same, I guess. But yeah, it's kind of frightening.
0: So if you're a young cadet now, like you were 27 years ago, coming into the to the firefighters in San Francisco, are you learning about these environmental contaminants and, and how to reduce exposure?
1: The old timers, myself, were just drilling it into the new kids as to what to do and, and how to protect themselves after a fire. And they've been absolutely fantastic. And, and they've been sort of militant about protecting themselves and as soon as the fire is over they take off their equipment, they wash it, they decontaminate themselves. I mean they're really exhibiting the best practices. There's one example of where that's not happening and that's in Boston and they had this old-time fire commissioner Joe Finn, like one of the original South Boston Irish guys, like straight out of uh, Goodwill Hunting and uh, his biggest problem with the fire service is in Boston they primarily hire veterans. So he has... 500 combat veterans that are all new firefighters and you can't tell a kid who's done three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan that a little bit of smoke is going to hurt him. Like He thinks he's bulletproof. So trying to change the, the mind of the young firefighters in Boston has been a huge problem back there. They're finally getting traction with it, but for the last five years that was their biggest issue. Old timers were getting it in Boston, but the new kids, the new veterans just didn't think that smoke had hurt them and they're finally like catching on with the fact that you know this is a very dangerous occupation it's not the big wall of flame it just could be the smoldering you know computer next to you after the fire that could be your biggest threat
0: so switching to the wildland urban interface fires like paradise and woolsey are you being called up to fight in them?
1: Yeah, we have a, a mutual aid agreement with California so different regions and counties respond to help each other out in the event of a, a, a big emergency like that. So we go out there and we have all the gear that they wear and it's a very it's a lightweight protective outfit because you're up in hundred degree heat and you know you're running around all day putting out these fires so you don't have the big bulky air tanks that we use. They just wear a bandana. Which was fine in the old days when it was a giant campfire and you were fighting a forest fire. But as California encroaches more and more into the wildland area, um, you know you have fifty cars burning and a hundred ranch houses burning together at the same time. they were all built in the '70s, and these aren't you know bastions of environmental soundness. These homes, I mean, they're full of plastics and toxins. We're almost bringing a new sensibility to the wildland firefighters like, hey, you guys need to catch on with this and see because we're facing this in San Francisco and you may not realize it, but you're facing the same chemical threat that we're facing and this isn't your, your father's wildland fire anymore. This is a whole different animal that you're fighting. So it's, it's, it's happening and they're reaching out and they're finding out what they need to do. So that's going to be a more challenging situation as to how you properly gear up firefighters for a wildland fire. I don't know how you provide respiratory protection for an 18-hour firefight. I mean, in San Francisco, if it's an hour and a half, that's a gigantic fire. But these guys, they're at the front line for 18 hours at a clip. They get eight hours off, then they're back at it again for 18 hours. So I don't know how you protect them from these toxins. We're trying to figure out how to do that.
0: Really, you're on the front lines of different environmental battles. One is against toxics, but this is really against climate change. You are the first responders to climate change and i think californians are finally waking up to the fact that climate change is here it's not it's not something that's going to happen in decades from now and and you're actually there on on the front line
1: i mean thankfully in california we have you know a state and a government that realizes that climate change is real and we're not denying the science It's frustrating on the national level when people are saying, you know, oh, it's fantastic. You know, warmest winter ever. This is great, you know, climate change is terrific. Like, well, no, it's not. Australia's on fire. California just lost the greatest number of homes ever. I mean, this is a very significant problem and the fires are getting hotter and more dangerous. And, you know, it comes at the end of this great boom in housing in California and population growth. So it really is the perfect storm of elements, climate change and expanding population into these densely wooded areas. It's tough for the firefighters, we'll keep doing our job, but, you know, we're hoping that we find solutions that we minimize the the breadth and scope of these fires. And does it just leave
0: the folks exhausted when they come back, when you're on these mutual aid?
1: No, I mean, they're they're glad to have helped out. It's physically draining. Emotionally, it's okay, because you've gone up there and you've helped out and you've assisted the community. And, And from north to south, east to west in California, I mean, people just appreciate firefighters. So... When you're driving home and you're exhausted and you see, you know, thank you firefighters and, the, you know, big signs up there, it's it's always rewarding to be a firefighter. We have nothing to complain about at all in regards to the public and the way they accept us, so... What are
0: you seeing trend-wise in terms of, like, what are you responding to now that's different than five, ten years ago?
1: We're doing more and more calls for homeless. There's your increase in number of disenfranchised people who are living on the streets. There's more and more drug overdoses. There's more and more septic infections. There's more and more calls for people that fall between the cracks of the social safety network. I mean, we're just... The, the homeless population is a giant, for lack of a better term, cry for help. And, and we need to find solutions because these, these poor people are just, you know, they're dying slowly. And, and it's frustrating for us to respond over and over and over again to the same people the same corner and they just they keep falling between the cracks, and not getting the care they need. And and you know, police and fire aren't equipped to give them that long term care to make an analysis of whether it's drug addiction or mental illness or they're just you know between paychecks. You know, where does this homeless individual fall in the spectrum of, of social services that are needed? So that's our biggest frustration, I would say, with the medical calls is that it's just growing by the day the number of calls we go on. It's sad.
0: So given that you're dealing with just amazing number of depressing issues (laughs) what gives you what gives you hope what what cheers you up at the end of the
1: day well what cheers you up is that you tried and you know you did your best and if it happens again you'll do it again tomorrow and and it's kind of like building the pyramids you just keep pushing that rock a little bit every day and suddenly you'll have a grand structure you know we are trying to start tracking the homeless and we have this thing called EMS6, which is an outreach with firefighters and paramedics and EMTs that are, are again, tracking the homeless and trying to get the most vital services they need. So we're getting there not as fast as we want, but, you know, we're trying to solve this broader social issue. And you can't do it with a hose and an axe, but we're sh- certainly trying our best. Well,
0: I appreciate everything you're doing and I appreciate you being kind of the secret environmentalist that you are.
1: No secret. Um, you know, we love, we love the environmentalists. And, again, it was just a... a a strange confluence of events that led us to become paired up with you know angry moms and environmentalists but it was a it was fun to watch that uh our funny little idea about starting a cancer prevention foundation in a back room or a back pew of a church in San Francisco just kept marching forward and back to my analogy of building the pyramid like suddenly within a couple of years i was watching the president of our foundation testifying before the united states senate and barbara boxer and it was a very heady moment about the power of an idea and if you just keep following and you know leaning forward you'll eventually get to where you want to go and your voice will be heard and the power of an idea is not one to be uh, underestimated
0: thanks tommy really appreciate it
1: no problem thank you jerry good talking to you
0: A huge thank you to San Francisco Fire Department Battalion Chief Tom O'Connor for talking with us today. Since Roman times, firefighters have been heroes for saving us in our hour of need. The strength through diversity that Tom described in San Francisco is a model for us all, and the role that firefighters play in our community has a lot of lessons as we reimagine the role of the police. The terrifying rise of cancer faced by firefighters. Caused by smoke from our burning TVs, furniture, computers, and from foam mattresses is a wake-up call that we need to push manufacturers to make less toxic products. As consumers, we also have a choice that we need to exercise with the health of our families and firefighters in mind. Having visited Paradise after the devastating wildfires, you realize that in the battle against climate change, firefighters are often all that stands between us Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, Sound Engineer, Rob Spade, Executive Producer, David Kahn. And from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, please take care of yourself and have a great week.